remember that you are not your job. Your personality is different from your job and, and, and enjoy your life, especially while you have it. And whatever opportunities you have to enjoy your life, do those things. Hello world and welcome to Her Royal Science. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode. Today we'll be chatting with Dr. Sabah Ul Hassan, a postdoctoral scholar and lecturer at Scripps Research in La Jolla, California. They completed their bachelor's in biology, chemistry, and environmental and sustainability studies at the University of Utah, followed by a master's in biochemistry at the University of New Hampshire, and a PhD in qualitative and systems biology at the University of California, Merced. I'm so excited to chat with Dr. Alhassan about science, identity, and intersectionality, but let's start from the very beginning. Dr. Alhassan, what's your story? So I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, to two immigrant parents, one from India, one from Pakistan, and uh, me and my brother, we kind of grew up in this area that was near uh, the smelly part of Salt Lake, so I think now there's actually... A lot of um, push, I think, right now happening for people to maybe save the Great Salt Lake. But at that time, people didn't really care about it. This was in the 90s. I didn't really see myself in the sciences. I think like a lot of kids of immigrant parents, I was encouraged to be a doc, like a medical doctor or a lawyer. And I just didn't see those for me. I really did like science and biology. We didn't have like pets or anything growing up, but I used to keep like insects, so I would keep them for a week or something, and then I would like, let them go. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was just that curiosity was there, and that with like then kind of learning about this ecosystem that lived right next to me, um, and then those two things I think is what kind of drew me towards like biology and wildlife biology, and now I do a bunch of stuff, or I have done a bunch of stuff over that time, but that's where it started, I guess. So could you tell me a little bit more about the work that you're doing now? Because you had quite a few jumps from different locations, and I'd love to hear more about how that story also transpired. But we can start now and then move backwards. Yeah. So as you mentioned, I am at Scripps Research at the California campus, and it's a wonderful place. This is now the start of my third year as a postdoctoral scholar, uh, mainly postdoctoral scholar, and I also teach some workshops and apply bioinformatics course. Mm. So uh, I was looking for positions a year before my PhD because I'm just high anxiety like that. And <laughs> I was like, I need a plan. And so I was looking and I was talking to people and everyone was great. Like there were some really great collaborators that I was actually working with. Um, but then, you know, I just decided, you know, maybe I'm like missing something. Maybe there's a place that is not on my radar and I need to check it out. So that's how I found where I'm at now is I just kind of did something where I'm like, this is a little tacky, but I'm just going to do it. And I posted on Twitter and I was like, here's my CV. I'm looking at stuff. Like if you'd like to have me, like let me know. And that was where my current PI, Dr. Andrew Sue, and also Dr. Uh, Don Eastman, who's with the grad office. Well, Andrew reached out to me, and then that's how I started a conversation with both of them. And I have loved it ever since. I work on Wikidata. And Wikidata is basically the structured, like, think Excel spreadsheet version of Wikipedia, and Wikipedia is the word doc. Mm. And so I'm working on kind of the biomedical aspect where I work with a group of people through the Gene Wiki project, and we integrate and then automate data integration from very specialized databases like ClinGen, ClinVar, some examples. Mm. 
Um, and those are mainly focused on relationships between genes and diseases in humans. So kind of like any mutations in genes and how those might be associated with disease and any sort of medications that are involved in treating those. So that whole set of pathways, that's kind of what I do and kind of curating that into Wikidata. And what got me into wanting to do this is I think it's just always been on my radar, just my family's level of access or lack of access, I should say, uh, and that contrast to being in academia and just a lot of people, a lot of peers, um, just coming from more affluent backgrounds. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just um, I think sometimes people kind of are disconnected from you know maybe what the average person might be experiencing or how how little they really have access to a lot of this kind of information. And so when I was doing my PhD, one of my dissertation chapters involved data that was over 100 years old, and it kind of got me thinking about, well, like, what, how can I make sure that my science is, one, uh, available, like, 10, 15 years from now, or even readable people 10, 15 years from now, and also accessible in terms of, you know, being able to look at it, kind of open source is what people call it open access. And so that's what brought me to this position and just really just enjoyed being part of a community that genuinely is interested in accessibility of data for the public and the public can also edit it just like with Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. So anyways, that's that's what I do. And that goes towards we have some kind of machine learning algorithms that we work on in the group. Uh, and we kind of put, put those towards like tools and resources and the one that I'm working on is was done previously by a grad student. And so I'm working on kind of reproducing that and automating it uh, to basically use Wikidata as a source for information to then identify potential candidates for drug repurposing for people to then, clinical researchers to then screen and test. What meaningful work you're doing. And I like that you're thinking far ahead about the readability of the work that you're doing and the accessibility of the work that you're doing. And those two things are very important to me as an individual. So kudos to you for that. But how similar is the work that you're doing now to the work you did for your PhD? And was was it a jump? And what was that jump like if there was one? So I did venom microbiomes for my PhD with marine snails or venomous marine snails. And I was really interested in host microbe interactions at the time. And I think Another theme up across was just like I was I've always been interested in the kind of community research or research that relates or is connected to the community in some way. So that research was I worked a lot with people in Baja, Mexico. It was very highly collaborative and my research now is highly collaborative. Um, I really enjoy that. I'm not really tied to this whole, you know, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff about like that I should only have, or, you know, just to have that like paper, like where I'm the only author, or there's just, like two or three authors. And, you know, for me, I'm just like, okay, if somebody in, was involved in some way in an intellectual way, like they can be on the paper. It like, doesn't, doesn't matter to me. I think, you know, science is meant to be a community and highly collaborative. Um, but I guess what led me to this so me being me, initially we started with just um, really interested in understanding what the microbiome was of the venom, just to figure out what kind of microbial biodiversity there was in venoms. Like there wasn't a lot of information on that, and then also it, what they might be doing in the venom. If they're symbiotic, if they're kind of positively or mutually contributing or negatively contributing in a parasitic way, or uh, combination. And so that was kind of where it started, and then. 
we were looking all along the California Baja Coast. When you think about it, California, it's like LA is one of the biggest cities in the world. Mm -hmm. And California is relatively new in terms of like, I guess, colonized population. Mm -hmm. And so you have, um, you know, millions of people, whereas like 100, 200 years ago, it was not very few. Uh, And you know, we had the whole Settlers Manifest Destiny thing and California got super popular after that. But anyways, um, coming back full circle. So with that data... That was the chapter that was working with 100, over 100-year-old data because we were wanting to look at sea surface temperature to see how much there was variability of the shell shape and size by sea surface temperature and kind of connecting that to climate change as well as human population density. And we can't say too much in detail because it's really difficult to actually extrapolate on that information or like try to really figure out the details of those results. And this really what got me thinking about data a lot more and just the importance of you know, in some ways, it seems really mundane or really boring to just be somebody that kind of curates data, but it's really important because you think about, you know, any scientist, they need, they usually work from previous data, whether it's previous experiments mm-hmm. or previous data in a database. And so I really wanted to be someone that could contribute to data that could be done well for a long time. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the word collaboration, and that got me thinking about another project that you're a part of, the Biota Project. What are the project's missions, and what are you doing now? Uh, yeah, so I, I'm so proud of what has happened with that. And I, I I'll just say, not because of me, because of all the people who were excited about it. And now it's kind of, it's mainly been taken on by Daniel Zarate now. So um, she's a PhD student at uh, UC San Diego who's wrapping up. But it started with me and my friend Jay, also goes by Lux Abubo. And we both grew up in that area that I mentioned before in Salt Lake. So that area is called kind of Rose, Rose Park, Glendale, which is now being gentrified. But, um, you know, Jay is Filipina and uh, I'm South Asian and... And again, both our parents, you know, immigrants, uh, and, you know, there's just a lot of context. And Jay did a lot of stuff with film, was really interested in doing filmmaking. And so I think this was like 2014. Uh, we'd have these like hour long conversations. She, they, is one of my best friends. And, and at that time, it wasn't, you know, these conversations about having more inclusive spaces or better representation in STEM, especially STEM education and like SciComm mm-hmm. wasn't as weren't as common. Like Twitter was just starting at that time, for example. Mm-hmm. So we were we were talking a lot about like Bill Nye and we're just like, where how come all of like Bill Nye and like Jeff Corrin and like all these mm-hmm. documents science documentary people and we're like, how come none of these people like all of these are like white guys like what like why like how come and we were thinking about we're talking about too we're like you know like you know we both went to university of utah and we were thinking about it and we're like you know like there wasn't a lot of like education or outreach at the at the neighborhood where we were like there weren't really a lot of scientists coming over to like glendale rose park area i was living on the east coast at the time and i was living in the third widest state in the country new hampshire per, cap- per capita so i think it's maine vermont and then new hampshire i don't know those stats are still true but uh, but at that time it was and 
I, I was lucky enough during my undergrad where I worked for, I worked in a lab where the PI is Filipino. Uh, shout out to Baltimore Oliveira Lab. Uh, but I, and the person I worked under was Indian, and I didn't realize how uncommon that was because that was kind of my first main, ex- or one of my first main experiences being in research was just being in a very international lab that was like mostly non-white mm-hmm. and uh, and the PI was non-white and, I, and the PI was Filipino, which I didn't realize was not very common in science, life sciences. And I was just, you, that, that was like my intro and it was awesome. And so I didn't really feel different until I lived on the East Coast and I was like the only uh, non-white person in the group besides like one Japanese grad student who was international and we were we were definitely friends and it, it's just weird you know like you don't I just want to say like and, and I'm sure you can say uh, attest to this too is like you just you don't want to see those patterns like you don't want to see patterns where people are being prejudiced like I think if anything I was for a long time like something is wrong with me like this is I'm experiencing this because something is wrong with me and then finally being like, no, this is prejudice. And so coming back to your original question of why the Biota Project. So it originally started in the science documentary series between me and Jay. And then it kind of evolved from there. And it really the intention was just like, we're kind of tired of trying to fit into the space where we're not even welcomed. Mm-hmm. And we want to make a space for people to just be who they are and to be themselves and that can also be science and that can be science education and so that was the intention the group has it's mainly a science education group uh, organization through an environmental justice lens Mm -hmm. and the intention has always been to be non-hierarchical so there's no formalized leadership their current theme for this next couple of months is food mm. so they've been doing a lot of stuff on like urban foraging they just had a clip out i can send like the youtube link to their channel they're just awesome so i'm, I'm really happy and the, the focus again is on communities and basically scientists who want to be talking to the communities that they're part of really not seeing that kind of communication as less than or like extra or whatever but a direct part of improving the way we do science. Mm-hmm. It is a great lead into the next question that I have for you about identity and about being yeah. Muslim. Is there a bright side? <laughs> the community aspect, maybe? I, I don't know. I don't want to put words in your yeah. mouth. But <laughs> the bright side is definitely like, you know, that like, like you reached out to me and I was just like, yes, like Muslim and science, like this is great. And it, you know... I, I feel like it's it's similar maybe in the queer community too. And of course there's like overlap between those two where, you know, it's almost like you like see someone's name or like you see someone wearing hijab, for example, or something, and you're just like, you want to like be all excited, but you also <laughs> don't want to like be weird about it. Like, so you're just like, you're like, do I go, do I say salam to them? Like, do I like, like, are they going to be like weird? Like, is it going to be like, maybe they're going to be like more religious than me or I'm going to be more religious than them. Or like, what's the situation? Like, you know, you're trying to like kind of feel out yeah. the situation. And then finally, when you like open the box, then you're like, oh my gosh, yeah. Like, <laughs> you want to do eat sometime? You want to do, like, Ramadan? Like, you know, it's all together. Like, so, and just to have that support, I think. So, right now, um, I told you already, like, like, I have, like, 
a WhatsApp chat with some friends and like I gotta add you to that and I just it's just a good it's really nice to just have that kind of venting space and then there's just kind of feeling of community and just I don't know it's just like a genuine connection and I think that's actually something I really love about being Muslim I don't know what your experience was like growing up as Muslim for me in Salt Lake one one pro I would say to being in Salt Lake is at the time now I think there's like a few masjids so it's it's a little more uh separated now unfortunately or clicky now maybe mm-hmm. maybe clicky is not the best word but um I think a little it's more... a good word I think it's a great word <laughs> But, but at the time, growing up in Salt Lake, you know, there weren't that, there was really just one masjid. And I think the, the pro to that was, you know, I would be praying next to Bosnians, Somalians, Egyptians, Arabs, like, you know, very multicultural. And that was just normal. And I grew up also, um, you know, my friends, you know, their parents or their families were uh, refugees that had to flee. And we just, my my parents, you know, we would just go to their house and hang out with them. And I didn't know the difference. Like, I didn't, that didn't register in my mind. And I think that's a good thing. Like, I didn't see someone like that differently than me as someone being born in the U.S. and having that privilege. And I think that's something uh, Islam really has helped me maintain, like that humility and sense of community with, you know, we all sit on the floor, we all sit next to each other, even if you don't know somebody, you're like praying next to them, shoulder to shoulder, so shaitan doesn't come in the way. (laughs) You know, just having that sense of support. And people are, I think, really professional and really formal about it too. And yeah, the positive side to all that is just like, you meet other people and you're just like, hey, and you know, you're just like a little family. And that's great. Yeah. To answer your question, I think it was a little bit of the reverse for me. Because mm-hmm. I was based in Toronto for such a long time and there are so many Muslims there right. that it is very clicky. It is very, right. that is a, a mosque for just people who are from this area. And this is another mosque. Right. If you go here, you're kind of crossing between territories. And if you're affiliated with one, with one mosque, then you feel like you're, I don't know, turning your back on them. If you go for a thought, oh, we had another mosque. <laughs> I know. I know. I think it is like that in Salt Lake now, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. And it does get messy. And unfortunately, because of those clicky tendencies by the time I got to grad school I was really timid you know that feeling of you know like who to talk to yeah do they feel you know cool with me and am I as religious as that person or do they think I'm too religious or the judgment yes and that that is so ever present and you're always like a little afraid of it but so often it's gone positively for me that I'm trying to actively erase yeah that feeling yeah I was the president of the Muslim Students Association when I was living on the East Coast. And, like, that judgment, I mean, it's, like, so real. Like, it's like, am I Muslim enough? Like, oh, they're more Muslim than me. And, you know, like, my mom wears hijab, for example. And, like, I've kind of done it on and off. And, you know, just, like, the way people are and the assumptions they make when you are wearing hijab and just, like, how religious you are or not religious you are. Like, and it's so ironic because it's just, like, you know, we all know that Islam is supposed to be about humility and not judging others because only Allah can judge you. And yet there is so much judgment. And it's just like, wait a second, <laughs> what are we doing? It does so. not make sense sometimes. I wanted to add on the other element of your intersectional identity, if possible, if you're comfortable yeah. talking about yes. it, of course. 
what has been your experience both in the academic space and also in the Muslim community of being non-binary? I, I know that some people are a little trepidatious about it and other people are super welcoming, but what has been your experience? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'll just say, I'll just give my own personal comments of why I identify as non-binary or they, them. And for me, it really came from a place of like, I already identified as queer and I really notice like I have to make an active effort to not be not genderize language when I'm talking about people and so for me I think you know we do have a lot of biases that we don't think about and when you when you start to talk like when they just try it as an exercise the next time you have a conversation with anybody and just instead of using he or she um, just replace it with they yeah and just think about how that might, like, just reflect on that after of that five-minute conversation or so, of, like, how you might be thinking of that person differently. Um, if somebody, you know, people sometimes will be like, oh, like, uh, they'll, like, accidentally say, like, she or something, and, and they'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And, and for me personally, you know, I don't really mind, if I know you in a close way, I don't really mind. Like, in a professional setting, I think it's important. So, like, anytime somebody intros me or, you know, is re- referencing to me in an interview or something, I think it's very important. Uh, but if somebody just, you know, kind of slips up by accident, but I can tell they're trying, like, yeah, it's okay, it happens, you know. But I know that's just something for me personally, because my life overall, you know, my life is overall unchanged. I would say, I, I'd say, and, and that's just to say comparatively to being Muslim, mm-hmm. and everyone has a different experience. But for me personally, comparatively to being Muslim, I think, you know, being queer, um, you know, I still can be pretty cis-passing, and so my life's fairly unchanged or unfazed. And so I think for me, like I'm, I'm more focused on supporting people whose lives I know are very impacted by their queer identities and, you know, kind of making more space for them and just having me be part of that space, but maybe not taking it up so much. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's stuff I try to think about. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, I don't know. That was a long answer to your question. I think it's a great answer because it leads me to, the final question of this conversation and I'm a little sad that this conversation is ending because you're a great person to talk to oh I feel like I've just been giving a monologue (laughs) it's great for me it means I don't have to do any work you have a very good calming voice oh thank you I appreciate that a lot (laughs) if you were to go back let's say 10 15 years would you do anything differently and if so what would you do differently yeah that's a great question I think if I were to do it again uh, <laughs> and people might get upset with me at this answer, but this is my honest answer. Uh, if I were to do it again, I think I'd probably just go to vocational school, and mm-hmm. I would have just gone to trade school or vocational school and gotten really good at something, like being an electrician or a plumber or something, mm-hmm. and just do that for, like, 10 years. Yeah. Um, but also, on the flip side, if you are wanting to do something, you know, in higher education, like be a medical doctor or a lawyer or a scientist or what have you, uh, if I were to just stay in this profession again, which personally, just speaking frankly, I love doing science. I will always love doing science. I'm always curious. But I also feel very comfortable like walking away from my job at any time and just doing something totally different. And that's not to say like I love my job. I love this job. It's a great job. I love what I do. I'm very grateful. Um, it took a lot of work to get here. But I think it's also important to remember that uh, to enjoy life while we have it, especially while we're able, um, you know, when my parents just had surgery and, you know, that you, you're, you're starting to see, seeing my parents get older, seeing people 
pass away um, at age, um, you know, you it's important to remember just how lucky we are to be able to wake up and you know move around uh, to whatever extent we can uh, to do things to think freely. A lot of people don't have that luxury, especially people that are uh, in camps. And, you know, that's something I think is on the radar of every Muslim worldwide. I'm uh, always thinking about that and just how lucky I am to just walk around wherever and just have that kind of access. Uh, but I, I guess if I were to do it again, yeah, I would go back. And I first of all, yeah, I guess just remember that you are not your job. Your personality is different from your job and, and, and enjoy your life, especially while you have it and whatever opportunities you have to enjoy your life. And, and make the most of it do those things uh, don't, don't 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 go too crazy but you know like just you, you have a lot of opportunity and I think because my parents are immigrants I, I think about that a lot also because of being Muslim I think that a lot um, and then the other thing is just so yeah if I were to do it again I'd either go to vocational school or I would have like taken breaks so I kind of went directly one after another and Asma you were also saying a little bit how you know, you did a little bit of that, and it just gets really tiring. And I think if I were to do it again, I took a break kind of between my master's and my PhD, uh, but it just gets really tiring. And so try to, if you are going between undergrad or a master's or PhD, you know, work for a little bit and, you know, work to, like, make a little money mm-hmm. and, like, you know, get, uh, you know, get heal from your burnout <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and just, like, have some fun, honestly. Yeah. And then you can always, like, school will always be there and so if you need your degree for something that uh, like a training type of thing like where your job is going to be a much better pay grade um, get that but if you feel happy with your job if you feel happy with what you want to do and you don't necessarily need a degree to do that then don't worry about it I think if you can do what you want to do without school like do that if you need school do that do that and so that's I think what I would have done a little differently and I would have taken a little more breaks in between I love that I don't think I've actually gotten that answer before and that's a great thing because I don't know if you feel the same way but there are times I feel like within the academic space there's a lot of ego and elitism and oh I'm better because I did this so I I think by saying that a lot of people might disagree with you only because it attacks at their own fragile ego (laughs) you know and that's probably the only reason why yeah and there's a great clip by George Washington Carver. Um, it's like a recording interview with him. I can send the, the YouTube link for that too if you want. Yes, please. Uh, but it's just about how the best science is done in the absence of ego. And mm-hmm. uh, he makes this comment where he's like, it's a terrible thing, that eye disease. And, you know, like it's, it's, <laughs> it's just really great. And I think about that all the time. I think it's so true. And again, you know, when you when you start looking at your science from the perspective of like, You know, I could leave this tomorrow. Like, stop, or at least from my personal perspective, like, you know, again, whatever people want to do, like, that's great. Um, I I personally think it's kind of bad to think of doing science from a perspective of, like, leaving a legacy. I have one mentor in particular who um, was one of the principal I worked for, who's now retired, and he told me too, you know, just have fun. And he was one of those people that like always working until like six or seven. And he really enjoyed it. Like he didn't have kids. Him and his wife, like they they, they worked and and they had a good time doing their their set their individual jobs. Um, and he, I think, just really enjoyed working. He he was telling me, yeah, just have fun, just enjoy. And I think really genuinely every day he was like just going to lab because he was just having a good time. Like if you're not having a good time. 
it's not lighting a fire in you or like maybe the fire is coming from a place of like I want to get the Nobel Prize which is like (laughs) that's fine I guess like that but me personally I think really good science is done by people that are just like enjoying it um and and you know have some thoughts in mind of how they want to help people in the process but yeah spot on thank you so so much Dr. Sabah Ul Hassan it's such a pleasure to have met you Thank you. Likewise. Yes. Yes, we're both doctors. Mashallah. Thank you so much, Dr. Bashir.